this is my last time with you, apart from a question and answer with Eva this, at the end of the afternoon. And so this will be the last variation on the theme, uh, mindfulness of breathing, and this in accordance with the Dzogchen tradition, which originated in India, but greatly flourished. It's promulgated in Tibet. And very simply, uh, Dzogchen means a great perfection, and the whole central point, the whole point of this matrix of the view, meditation, way of life of the great perfection is to fathom right down to its uttermost depths the nature of consciousness, the nature of awareness. The two terms are used synonymously. But it's all about fathoming consciousness. Uh, and so the first book I ever picked up on Tibetan Buddhism was about Dzogchen. It totally hooked me, even though I understood almost nothing. Nineteen years later, His Holiness introduced me to it. And that's been the central focus of my practice, translation, writing, and teaching ever since. So I guess that's, I found my home. Uh, so this will not be a Dzogchen retreat, but it will be drawing from that tradition a variation, a theme, still an interpretation of what the Buddha said right there in his own words, in English translation, but with the, the ambience, the orientation, the framework, perspective of mindfulness of breathing as a way fathom the very nature of consciousness itself, right down to the ground. So please find a comfortable position. Anyone will do. But you would like your spine to be straight. That's kind of a common denominator. We'll have a 24-minute session, and then I will finish up. Using your most meaningful motivation for engaging in this short practice. <coughs> Set your body and mind at ease, relaxing, letting your awareness descend to the ground, and settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. And even in the supine position, where you relax every muscle in your body to the best of your ability, mentally, psychologically, you're assuming a posture of vigilance. You've adopted a formal yogic posture for cultivating your mind. Outwardly, you look just totally relaxed, but inwardly, you are relaxed, still, and vigilant. to settle your inner speech of the mind, 
into its natural state of effortless silence. To facilitate this, we settle the respiration in its natural rhythm, as we've done before. one might say with an existential sense or dimension of release, of letting go. Release your identification with the body and with your mind, and with your hopes and fears. Release it all. As if you are on the verge of dying, Everything will be taken from you, your body, your mind, your memories. They will be taken from you. The only thing that cannot be taken from you is that which you never acquired at some point in the past. Awareness. With the release of all grasping, let your awareness come to rest in a state of profound ease, looseness, still and bright. This is known as letting awareness settle in its own place, right where it is. It's known as letting awareness hold its own ground. And it's without going outwards to the physical senses, without going inwards to thoughts and memories, without going outwards or inwards, letting awareness rest right where it is, wherever that may be. <coughs> your eyes be at least partially open, your gaze vacant, not looking at anything, not focusing your eyes or your mental awareness on any object at all, but just resting. And sustaining the flow of awareness that is open, unimpeded, non-selective, Resting without striving. Resting without desire.
not seeking to modify your mind in any way. And resting without doing anything at all. Just being aware. simplicity, you will naturally become more and more explicitly aware of being aware, knowing that you are aware. It is the knowing of knowing. Rest there in that flow of self-knowing cognizance, awareness, knowing itself. And this is the practice. It is called non-meditation. You're not doing anything with the mind. You're not trying to modify or develop the mind. You're simply resting in awareness, resting in this stillness, in the midst of the comings and goings of sensory appearances, sound, sight, touch. Resting in stillness in the midst of the movements of your mind, which come and go ornerless. Like people passing through a train station. essence of this practice, which is in fact no practice at all, is simply sustaining this mindful presence without distraction, without being carried away, lost in thought, or carried away by some sensory impulse. Resting here without distraction, without grasping, without identifying with any of these appearances, body, the 
mind or anything else. Resting without distraction, without grasping. In utter simplicity, awareness, knowing itself. And as you rest there, because you're probably not in deep, deep samadhi, otherwise you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. As relative beginners, while we're resting primarily in this ever so simple, unmediated awareness of being aware, effortlessly, we can be aware, peripherally, of the rhythm of respiration without directing your attention to the body or to sensations here or there the rhythm of the breath rises up to meet you it comes to you you don't need to go to it and when the in-breath is long you will note that it is long and when the out-breath is long without thinking about it without focusing on you will know that it's long. And when they're short, you'll know that it's short. So the essence of this Dzogchen approach to mindfulness of breathing is let the, the main force of your awareness be resting right where it is, knowing itself. But peripherally, effortlessly, simply note the rhythm of the respiration the relative duration of each in and out breath. It's easy to space out, easy to get lost in thought. But insofar as it's helpful, like putting trainer wheels on a bike when you're first learning to ride. You may, if you wish, at least now and then, arouse, focus, concentrate your attention as you sense the breath flowing in, right into the very nature of awareness itself, unmediated, raw, naked and bare awareness. As the breath flows out, release, relax your awareness, release it into space with no object, no thought, while sustaining the flow of awareness of awareness. Deeply relax and release. Arouse and release with the rhythm of the respiration. Until it's no longer useful. Until you let the set the pendulum pendulum come to rest in the center. Primarily aware of simply being aware. Peripherally, out of the corner of your eyes, metaphorically. Simply noting the, the rhythm of the respiration. 
centering the awareness in the present moment, from breath to breath. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
something quite extraordinary about Western knowledge, and I mean really Eurocentric knowledge, and I'm referring especially to scientific knowledge, uh, for which I have so much admiration. I've studied extensively, collaborated in multiple research projects with scientists. But it's extraordinary that we know so much and we so know, know so little scientifically. So much about the objective, the physical quantifiable, about the universe, about atoms, dark matter, expanding universe, black holes, DNA, the list goes on and on, all the way down to quarks. It's amazing. The knowledge of biology, botany, evolution is extraordinary. But when it comes to consciousness, it's widely acknowledged by pretty virtually everyone in the scientific community. Big mystery. Nature of consciousness, what is it? How does the mind and brain, how do they interact? What's the nature of the correlation? That there are correlations, neuroscientists have been terrifically successful. What's the nature of the correlation? No progress in 150 years. Clearly none. No definition of consciousness, no way of measuring consciousness, no idea where it comes from, and frankly, if we're really honest, not a clue what happens at death. So the notion that somehow death is termination is a belief like any other, but there's nothing scientific about it. Nothing at all scientific about it. Because if you're presuming to know it, how it ends, you'd have to know how it started, and they're clueless. So this is not a criticism. Buddhism has no neuroscience. Let me count the ways of the types of knowledge you won't find in Buddhism. Photosynthesis, DNA, developmental psychology, etc., etc. shall I go on? So we come to this wonderful theme of complementarity. But the fact that for the tremendous successes of modern science, especially since Galileo, we know very little scientifically about the true sources of happiness, the true sources of suffering, the nature of consciousness, potentials of consciousness. And what on earth happens at death? Something happens. I cannot believe it's simply a matter of opinion that if you believe in heaven, there's a heaven, but if you don't, there isn't any. If you believe in continuity, there is, but if you don't, there isn't. I mean, no other aspect of reality is like that. If you believe in atoms, they exist, but if you don't believe in atoms, it doesn't matter. There's still atoms. So something happens, and it doesn't care about what you believe. Something happens at death. Why should that remain a mystery? Does it have to? Is it intrinsically a mystery? After all, the dead don't tell any tales. Well, find the appropriate technology. Until Galileo came along, it was a mystery. Does the sun go around the earth, the earth go around the sun, or do, does the, earth, the sun go around the earth and all the planets go around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had no way of determining. They were good theories, each one saved the appearances, but they couldn't come up with any answer that everybody could agree on. Until Galileo discovered the phases of Venus, and that settled it. The sun doesn't go around the earth, he proved it. It was anybody who knows it, just you can't disagree, you cannot disagree. The facts are there, and if you have the appropriate technology for studying the consciousness, there are facts that are undeniable for anybody who's knowledgeable. And the technology for fathoming nature of consciousness, where you could start, like with Galileo's 30-power telescope, the best one he got, where you can start is shamatha. And the practice we just did would be a good start. And the practice before that are a good primi, you know, good prep preparation. And so I'll present you with a theory. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not trying to persuade people to believe this. We should follow the facts. That's what good scientists do. And not just follow what you believe and ignore every fact that disagrees with what your beliefs are. And that happens all too often especially for those who are firm, advocate, consigned to materialism. They simply ignore all the facts that disagree with their, you know, they're incompatible with their materialistic beliefs. That's metaphysics, but it's a sham science, and it happens a lot, I'm sorry to say. So what happens at death, and does it need to be, remain a mystery? Here's a strategy. 
They practically just did. And that is, look at it. Don't just look at brain correlates and behavior. You'll, ne you'll never ever get it. If you've made no progress in 150 years, don't count on doing the same thing and getting a different result. Shamatha, look right into the nature of consciousness and cut through your mind, the mind that arises independence upon the brain and test through your experience, does consciousness arise from the brain, and therefore does it vanish at death? It's a plausible hypothesis, but it's either true or false. It's not just true because a lot of scientists say so, because they're just expressing a belief. Here's a hypothesis that can be tested, and I have yet to find, and I think I know the whole range, because I spent a lot of time looking, I think I hold and know the whole range of variations on the theme of materialistic views of consciousness, including that it doesn't exist at all. I thought that was really <laughs> interesting that somebody would consciously say that, other people consciously <laughs> listen, and then agree, because it was published in the New York Times, so it passed the editorial board. Consciousness doesn't exist. Mm, interesting idea. Let's publish that. <laughs> Wonders never cease. The materialists are getting away with a lot. And so here's something that's high testable. Settle your mind. Calm the composite of your body. Calm the kaleidoscope of your mind until it goes quiet, as if you were falling asleep, but becoming more and more and more lucid as you fall asleep, so that your woman's mind, man's mind, human mind, gopher mind, dissolves into deep, dreamless sleep. And there's nothing human about deep, dreamless sleep. There's nothing human about the mode of consciousness you're resting in deep, dreamless sleep, and you can know that when you're lucid. It's not male or female, it's not Hispanic or Anglo, it's not old or young, it's not rich or poor, it's just not human. And that is called that dimension of consciousness that's left over, that still lingers, when all the activities of the mind, your perceptions and all the activities of the mind have gone dormant, as in deep, dreamless sleep, as when you faint, as when you go under general, general anesthesia, as when you achieve shamatha, and as when you die. All the activities of the mind are at least temporarily <coughs> out. They'll come back, unless it's the dead one, in which case you won't get back that human mind. What I just said, is that true or false? You can test it. But when you fall asleep, you're losing lucidity. By and large, people are getting duller and duller, and they pass out. And when they're deep asleep, they're not aware of anything explicitly. Whereas if you follow the trajectory of shamatha, and we don't have time to unpack that now, I did, I did so in, my, in the book Attention Revolution, if you follow that trajectory, you come to the point where your human mind, with your human history and so forth, your memories and all of that, it's not lost like vanishing in a space, but it all goes dormant. And what lingers, what remains when all the activities of the mind have gone dormant, but this time lucidly, because you're coming brighter and brighter, more and more vivid as you develop shamatha, going from a 100-watt bulb to a 1,000-watt bulb. So when your mind vanishes, you're radiantly, incandescently, and discerningly aware, but not with your mind. No language, no thought. It's not human. And what remains is this, it's called here bhavanga. That's one of the many, many terms used by different traditions, discovering this using different methods in different conceptual frameworks. That suggests to me this is not an artifact of a belief system. It's something that's discovered. And it's either true or false. 
And if it's true, the more deeply you investigate it, the true it will appear. And if it's false, apply your whole acumen to this, and you'll see it's more and more false. And you'll throw it out. This is a hypothesis. This should be treated as a scientific hypothesis if you cheapen it by saying, well, it's just a religious belief or line of authority. You've missed the whole point. And if you think this is simply some good conclusion drawn by philosophical analysis, then you've missed the point. The evidence is here. You can see for yourself, but, but it's hard work. It's not easy to build a 30-power telescope. It took Galileo quite a few years to get that good. It's much harder to develop the Hubble telescope, and it's even harder to develop the James Webb Space Telescope, which is online, <coughs> come on soon. It takes a lot of effort. And developing Samadhi is the telescope of the mind. If you want to fathom the mind, develop Samadhi so you can pierce through the dust contamination, the fog and the smog of your mind for which you can hardly see anything except for the smog. Your emotions, your thoughts, your hopes, your fears, you, 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 you. And it obscures the nature of consciousness. It's illuminated by consciousness and obscures consciousness. Because all you can see is the noise. You have to get, be quiet. Get the mind to shut up. Go to sleep, mind. I'm busy. And main, maintain consciousness. And the assertion here is to be tested and has been tested countless times, hundreds, thousands of times. One of the most tested hypotheses ever formulated is when you achieve shamatha, you're tapping into what is called here babanga, ground of becoming. And it is that. Here's the hypothesis. I do not ask anybody to believe it because I say so or somebody else said so. It's true or false. Test it, and it can be tested. Unlike every materialistic hypothesis that I'm aware of, none of them can be tested. They can't test it because they can't even define consciousness and they can't measure it. How do you test a hypothesis if you can't do either? So they're running around in circles, chasing their own tails. Mm. This one you can actually test, has been tested, should be tested, and should be tested in complete collaboration with scientists. If it's true, it's true. Then it's not a Buddhist truth, any more than the laws of Newton are English truths. And he was a devout Christian. That doesn't make him Christian truths. They're just the way things are. And so when you achieve shamatha, you're tapping into this simple, primal continuum of consciousness. And let's not mistake this for anything divine, transcendent, Holy Spirit, kingdom of heaven within, pristine awareness, Buddha nature, Dharma, it's, it's not, it's not. I would say all of those statements are in the realm of religion, which can be taken simply on faith, but they can also be accessed by very, very profound contemplative inquiry. But I would say the assertion here is just flat out science. Because this is in the realm of depth psychology and not philosophy or mysticism or religion. It's right here, something to be observed if you develop the appropriate technology. Just like the, Jup the moons of Jupiter, spots on the sun and so forth. It's not mystical. It's just you need the appropriate technology. And so the assertion here is that when you're tapping into the bhavanga, and that's all that's left when you achieve shamatha, your mind has finally settled in its natural state right down to its relative ground and you're settling in a mode of consciousness that is primal, not transcendent, not divine, primal. It is the same primal consciousness that remains when a gopher dies, and a tadpole, and a chimpanzee, and an Einstein, and so forth and so on. What's saying here is that every form of consciousness of embodied human being beings, like ourselves and all of our animal friends, all of their minds are configured by their nervous system, by their brains, to various degrees of sophistication. But when the sentient being, and it's animals, humans, and to whom it may concern anybody else, pluralistic, that when your, 
Your configured mind comes to an end because the body independence upon which your mind arose and was configured, when that body comes to an end, your mind becomes unconfigured and dissolves back into a primal flow that is not physical, not objective, not quantifiable. And it moves on to take another form. That was Pythagoras' conclusion, Plato's conclusion, Socrates' conclusion. And we find this conclusion having been drawn in the Jewish tradition, mainstream. Christianity, early Christian church, very common. Buddhism everywhere, Hinduism everywhere, Taoism everywhere. And we find it evidence corroborating this from first-rate science at the University of Virginia, for example, 40 years of research, open-minded, not dogma-bound. It should be investigated. The evidence is quite extraordinary. Ian Stevens, the name, Ian Stevenson, the late Ian Stevenson, the man to look into. The evidence is there. You can look at it. Anybody can evaluate it. But evaluate it on its merits of the rigor of the scientific investigation and not, this isn't scientific, therefore we won't look. And so, stem consciousness, we all know what a stem cell is. It's a, stem, a stem cell is something that could be configured as a neuron, a, a, a liver cell, a bone marrow, a liver cell, a, a blood cell, and so forth, but it hasn't yet gotten configured as such. These proto-neurons get up to hippocampus, and that's a little neuron factory up there. It creates hundreds of millions of fresh neurons. But they weren't, weren't neurons coming in, and when a neuron dies, the neuron doesn't go into some neuron heaven. It just stops being a neuron. It gets configured and unconfigured. Sooner or later, the brain goes dead. There are no neurons left in a dead brain, as far as I know. And so the notion of a stem consciousness, that's what you can tap into. You can peer into that dimension of your own being, that dimension of your own consciousness while you're alive and well. You can rest in it, you can know it, and you can come out of samadhi, come emerge out of your deep <coughs> meditation, and of course then your mind arises once again, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to be a human all over again, until you fall asleep. And then you'll lose it, but you get it back when you start dreaming, and so on. That's a hypothesis. How can it be tested? It can be tested. This one, finally, you can test it, which means you can come up with negative data and positive data. And that's not true for any of the materialistic theories I've seen. I think I've seen all of them. None of them can give positive or negative results. You just believe, and then you talk more. It starts with a leap of faith, with no evidence of compelling reason, including the most sophisticated ones I've seen. Starts with a leap of faith, just go this far. And so, how can you test this one? Well, Buddha Gosa told us how 1,500 years ago. A deep, a deep taste of samadhi, so your, your human mind, all the noise, all the light pollution, the air pollution, the smog pollution of the air of your awareness is cleared away. You penetrate through that, like the Hubble telescope that's, what, 80 miles above. It's above all the contamination here. So between the Hubble telescope and the stars, there's pretty much nothing. There's no contamination, so it's really good, not even light contamination, let alone perturbations of air and so forth. And so cut through the layers of atmosphere of your mind until you're looking on the far side from a perspective that is not even human, nonverbal, non-conceptual, but discerningly, clearly, radiantly aware, cognizant. And here's the hypothesis. Are memories stored in the brain? or not. And if they're stored in the brain, then when you die, your memories don't go anywhere. They're just gone. And, so, and, and there's evidence that supports that. I, I know it. It's, evidence is very interesting, very suggestive. 
Because if you damage those neurons that are correlated with a specific memory, you can lose a memory, but you might not. Other neurons might kick in and you might actually have them. So the evidence is there, but it's not unequivocal. But it is suggestive, it's intelligent. The notion that memories are encoded in, that's the word they use, encoded in the neurons, the synapses, the dendrites, in which case they're located in the brain. That's a true or false statement. But let's not just assume it's true. It's an untested hypothesis. The evidence is not unequivocal. Buddhists have another hypothesis. That's wrong. That one's wrong. Any more than the memories in your laptop are stored in the keyboard. If you damage your keyboard, you may not lo no longer be able to access your memories. But the memories are not stored in the keyboard. But if you were Rumpelstiltskin, fell asleep when I got my first computer, where the, you remember? The hard drive was over here, a great big heavy box, and the keyboard looked like a keyboard now. If you fell asleep for 30 years, and you buy yourself a computer, a desktop nowadays, say, wow, advanced so far, they, so well, that they don't need hard drives anymore. Clearly, because you have a keyboard and a screen, that's all that, but people used to believe in hard drives, but we don't now, because we know better. There's no such thing as a hard drive. There is simply the screen, and that's behavior, and the keyboard, and that's the brain. And there's no such thing as mind apart from the keyboard and behavior. Is that true or false? Well, the, how this becomes testable is where are memories stored? They're not in a computer, with all the computer analogies for the brain. As Stephen Hawking said, asked about consciousness, he said, well, the mind is the, the, mind is the hardware, and excuse me, the brain is the hardware, and the mind is the software. And when you're dead, you're dead. <laughs> okay, I think any good high schooler kind of could have come up with it. Come up with that one. I wish he could have come up with it better, but that was not his strength. But that's a hypothesis, not stupid, just mm, unsubstantiated by the evidence. What if that's completely false? That your brain is much more like the keyboard, and the hard drive is this babanga, and all your memories are stored there, accessed by way of brain until you don't have one, but when you die, you just go into the hard drive, because that's the dimension of consciousness that carries on. What if? Didn't you do a what if? You did a lot of what if. It's very helpful to do what if. Einstein did that a lot. It worked. His thought experiments. What if? How could you test it? What if you damage the brain, you're damaging the keyboard, but you're not damaging the memories at all because that's not where they're stored. Damage the hard drive, well, then you could have a real problem. Well, you can't damage the substrate consciousness or this babanga ground of becoming. So here's a, here's a very simple test, very briefly. I got three minutes. Wow, it's going to be very brief. <laughs> Because lunch is calling. <clears throat> Create a facility that is a facility specifically designed for the collaboration between highly trained professional contemplatives with years of training, just like getting a PhD in neuroscience, and neuroscientists, psychologists, philosophers, maybe physicists, they've gotten very interested in the nature of the observer in the natural world, and bring them all together with the one common ground, let's find out what's true. And nobody here has a monopoly. Let's just agree to that. The contemplative don't have a monopoly. We don't know squat about the brain. And the brain scientists, frankly, don't squat, know squat about consciousness. They're just not good at it. Otherwise, they would have made some progress after 150 years. But bring them together and get people to achieve shamatha and run the experiment that Buddha Gosar suggested 1,500 years ago. Go down there, tap into the hard drive, the stem consciousness, without having to be dead. It's very nice. And once you're there, you're resting in the Carnegie Hall of Consciousness with pin drop acoustics. 
and a laser, and the laser is your attention, and you're in a time machine. I'm not speaking anything mystical here, just utterly prosaic, and direct your attention to the past, like you can do right now. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Can you remember? The food's all gone. But can you remember what you ate for breakfast this morning? Go into your time machine. Yeah, I remember. Mark made me a nice... Then there was that, and there was that, and my Earl Grey, and I had... Oh, there was that again. I, I got it. I nailed it. I know exactly what I had. With total confidence. But that was this morning. What did I have for breakfast a month ago? Don't have a clue. Because <laughs> there's too much noise in between. Right? But you've gone into Carnegie Hall of Awareness, where it's pin drop, crystal clear silence, you got a laser pointer, and you simply dial up. I'm going to give a trivial example. What did you have for breakfast a month ago? And right now, I can probably say, I'll give you a million dollars if you can give me the accurate answer. Unless you have the same breakfast every day, you probably will come out with no million dollars because there's too much noise in between. Because that's your up there in your mind, whereas the memories are not stored in your mind. They're, they're stored down there. So let's take a trivial example, but an example where somebody knows the answer. The scientist knows the answer. And like a quiz quiz show, they don't tell you what questions they're going to ask you, right? So there's no conspiracy, no setup here. They will research your life without, and you're in retreat, so you have no idea what questions they're going to pose to you, and say, okay, where were you on this date five years ago, and what were you doing? And where are you on this date 15 years ago, and what were you doing? And where are you on this date? And they have all the right answers, like a quiz show. And you don't have any idea, of course, what questions they're going to pose to you. And they say, now go into your samadhi and direct your attention like a laser pointer to this date five years ago. Where were you doing? What were you doing? What was it like? And you'll either come up with right answers or wrong answers. Buddha Gosa says, you'll have the capacity to come up with the right answer. That's 95 years ago, 10 years ago. Let's imagine you're 40. You go back, you go back to 38 years ago. You're still getting veridical memories, hypothesis. Maybe you are. And then imagine you're 40, and they say, okay, well, this is spectacular. This is worth some major scientific papers. You've gone into samadhi, and you're able to retrieve veridical memories from when you were 10 and 15 and 2 years old, and you nailed it. We knew the right answer, and you nailed it by going into samadhi, <coughs> pinpointing that, drawing it out, and telling what you, what you saw. That would be really interesting. But now, imagine you're 40 years old, and they say, okay, that was really spectacular. You told me where you were when you were 2 and a half years old. Amazing. And you got it right. Where were you, 40-year-old? Where were you? What was your experience 42 years ago? Before you were conceived. Check, please. 42 years ago. Please check. Tell me what you come up with. And they'll come up with one of three things. This is testable. You come and you pick on you. You come up and you're going to say either, I looked and there was no signal. I got nothing at all. Blank screen. You write it down. That was the report. They looked 42 years ago, nothing. Che one check for the materialists, not proof, but that's definitely evidence in their favor. Right? No evidence. I got no signal at all, no memories. Okay? Another one is you go in and say, by cracky, I was Cleopatra. <laughs> 42 years ago, I was Cleopatra. Uh, no, you weren't. <laughs> you might have been Cleopatra 2,000 years ago, but not, well, not 42 years. No, you come up with, you could come up with total fabrication. That's really a possibility. Real possibility. Testable. And you may go in, and you may come out and say, oh, I'll give an example. Ah, I was living in Buenos Aires, and I was an old man. My name was Juan Carlos. 
my wife died three years ago, my daughter's taking care of me, and I live at this address, and I stored my wife's jewelry here. And I've got four kids, but only one is with me. Would you like to know more? And the scientists say, scam, scam, scam. The scientists have to be skeptical, otherwise they're crap scientists. So they go down to Argentina, and they do their research that you don't know what they're going to come up with. But lo and behold, imagine they find there was a guy named Juan Carlos who died about a year before you were here. And you got that right, but this could be a scam. It could be a setup. They could be tricking them, trying to prove Buddhism, you rascals. <laughs> but then they do a whole bunch of research on this real guy. Where was he born? Where did he go to school? Who was his first friend? Like those, you know, what was your first car? Where did you meet your spouse? And all that kind of business, you know? And they, you have no idea what they're going to check out. They're going to check out everything because they don't like being tricked. Scientists don't like scams. I don't either. They're going to get so much data, and then it come back to you. Okay, young lady. What was the name of your first girlfriend? And but how do you plan for that? If you've got a scam going in, how do you plan for that? And you either come up with the right answer or wrong answer. And that's negative data, positive data. But don't do it with one person. Because they say, oh, you're the Messiah, you're the Holy One, you're the Avatar. Oh, then somebody has to come along and kill him, for sure. That's what we do, you know? We worship him, and then we kill him. Uh, so no, don't do it just one person. We'll just make a superhero out of them and ask him to save the planet. Now get 18 of them to do that. And you say, oh, but this is not one person. This is, do the training. Anybody can look at the, at the moons of Jupiter if you just develop the right telescope. You don't need an avatar to discover whether the Earth goes around the sun or vice versa. You just do it and let many people do it. So that's how it's testable. Something's true. Something's true. And this is not an intrinsic mystery. But if you have memories before your brain ever developed, then the chances are extremely good you're going to have more memories after this life is finished. In which case now, you're dealing with a very different world. And the cultivation of genuine happiness now becomes cosmic. It's not just something you try to do for a little while until you're dead and lights out. It's like maybe this really is the meaning of existence. Why are we here? What's the point? Why are we conscious? Why do we have feelings? Why do we care? Why do we want something better? And it's because we will always want something better until we find perfection. We'll always want to know more until we know the nature of reality. We'll always want to know until we know utterly who we are and we fully awakened to our innermost potential. And then our only task will be to wake up everybody else. Thank you for your very precious time. See you after lunch.